Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. Thank you, worship team. Well, this morning I have uh, the honor of introducing a longtime member, as Caroline mentioned. And when we say longtime, she was one of the original members. So before we were even a church, they were uh, meeting in a, a house uh, somewhere near UConn's campus. And um, so we, we are joined today by Kathy Wright. Kathy is a retired professor from UConn. I say retired because she's still a historian, researcher, and freelance editor. And she also works with uh, Savanon, uh, which is an organization that works with women who have been uh, sexually abused. So, so grateful for her work with that as well. Uh, she also has a, a grandchild coming in a few weeks, so she's very excited for that. <laughs> and recently, her and her uh, husband, Brad Wright, uh, co-authored a book called Life Crafting, How to Change Just About Any Behavior to Create an Extraordinary Life. Um, we have a copy of this downstairs in our, our church library, but you really kind of need your own because it has like a workbook in there as well. So you could read it, but it also has, unless you, you know, attach a page to it or something. So um, if you're interested, come see me and we can uh, help you out and get a copy of this for you. So um, come on up, Kathy. We're so excited to have you this morning. Um, so this morning, I want to talk about uh, a couple of different wildernesses, um, the main one being the wilderness of despair, what we now call these days uh, depression. And to do that, I'm going to look at the story of Naomi from the book of Ruth. We're going to focus on the first chapter, although I'll give a quick summary of the rest. Um, so this is what we've got. But before, before we go into that, um, I'm a historian, so you guys get a history lesson. All right. And let's see if I can make it work. Oh, what am I doing? That way. Wow. OK. So when calamity strikes, um, when calamity strikes, we're often required to change our behavior, our actions, how we go about our day-to-day -day life. If we think of, for example, the fires in Maui, people there had to change everything overnight. They lost their homes. They had to figure out where they were going to live. They had to figure out where they were going to work. Everything had to be changed. And when we choose a change, like we decide we're going to take a ballet class, or we're going to learn the guitar, or we're going to learn how to cook French meals. That can be really fun. We have decided on that purpose. We then go and we change our behavior. We learn how to cook. Um, changing behavior is not necessarily repenting of sin. It's anything that we change uh, in order to actualize a goal that we have. And when we are forced to change our behavior, this usually works best when we have two things. 
First, a sense of purpose or motivation, a reason for making that change. And it, it, it's a lot happier if we come to that sense of purpose by ourselves. If your boss says, you're late one more time, I fire you, that is the boss giving a sense of purpose. And we race out of bed, we feel terrible the whole time. It is not a happy sense of purpose. But if we decide to learn to play the flute, then we're happy as we go about doing it. The second thing that we need often are companions. We need fellow travelers, just like Paul needed Silas and Jesus needed the 12. It's a lot easier to move forward if we're not alone. And one of the things about despair, which will become clear, is that often people feel really lonely in it. But let me take a look at a situation when calamity strikes, where everyone had a purpose and companions, and yet, ultimately, it wasn't enough. And from there, I'll go to the story of Naomi and discuss why. So, there, oh, thank you. All right, Ernest Shackleton. Ernest Shackleton wanted to explore the South Pole, but every single time he, he got on, an, uh, uh, on a, an expedition, boom, it went long, wrong. He fell and broke a leg. Uh, everybody else made it to the pole but him because he had pneumonia. So finally he decides, okay, I can't make it to the pole. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take out a ship of men to Antarctica, and we're going to cross from one side of Antarctica to the other, and lo and behold, we'll go right through the pole, and I'll have done it. Yay. So he got together a group of men. Uh, there they are in the snow in front of their ship, the Endurance. There were 29 of them. And he went for quite a mix of men. He made sure there were a couple musicians along, a doctor, uh, horticulturalists, whatever you want. And there were also 70 dogs because, you know, to cross the pole, you need dogs and dog sleds. So, unfortunately, they plan the trip for Arctic summer when the temperature hovers around 30 degrees below zero. What he didn't realize is that during Arctic summer, the ice shelf melts and you get all kinds of icebergs. And so when he and his men went to the mild climate of Antarctica, their boat their ship couldn't make it, it got caught in the ice flows. And they floated along for a while, and then the ice just stopped. And by the time they realized it was stopping, summer was turning into winter, where the temperatures get down to 80 below zero. And so he said, okay, let's change our purpose. And that's what he did. Their purpose was now to hang out on this ice for six months until things melted again and he could get the boat out. And they would change from trying to get across Antarctica to exploring the flora and fauna, and believe it or not, there is, on icebergs. And so there's their boat, all caught, and there's the men. And he put together a roster. Everyone had different duties on different days. They had to switch what they did so that one person wasn't doing dishes every day. 
Um, you got to play with the dogs. You got to go hunting for penguin and seal. They made little inventions. The, the horticulturalist collected, you know, bacteria and looked at it under his microscope. So they were all doing their things. And at the end of the day, he made sure they all had social time. They put on plays. They had debates. They wrote stories and poems and read them to each other. No doubt they were really bad stories and poems, but they had a good laugh. Um, so everybody had a daily purpose and an ultimate purpose, but they had had to change their lives for that. Um, well, time goes on. Autumn comes, and indeed the ice broke up, but instead of freeing the boat, it crushed the boat. And let's see if I can do this right. And here we have the boat. And they started hearing the timbers cracking, and they realized they only had a couple of weeks. So Shackleton had all the men take everything they could off the boat, including some lumber, the canvas from, the, from some of the sails, uh, and they, they started building huts on the ice. And keep in mind that this ice is floating. It's, you know, it's maybe several miles long and wide, but it's floating. And they stood there, and there's their dogs, and they watched as the ship went down. And everybody looked at Shackleton. They wanted to know what he would do. And possibly in private, he cried. Uh, certainly some of the, the men were pretty stunned. But instead, he watched the boat go down, and then he turned to the men and said, all right, boys, now our goal is to get home. Now, he says this, the boat's gone. How are they going to get home? So he says, he talks to the scientists. They say, well, the ice is floating this way. Let's try to flow with the ice, and maybe we'll make it to South America, or if we're really lucky, we'll make it to New Zealand, um, which is on the other side of Antarctica. But they didn't know where they were going to end up. They just hoped they ended up somewhere. Um, and he, everyone was put in various tents. He made sure that the people who were more morose in temperament went in the tent with him because he was afraid that their depression would spread among the rest of the men. And he said later that the, the only thing that got them through, the thing that would enable them to survive, was a sense of hope, a sense of motivation, a sense of purpose. And they continued working together. They continued having musical evenings. Um, they figured out how to cook with, with seal fat, all kinds of good things that they didn't know they were going to do. Well, a full year and three months go by, and they're still stuck. And the ice isn't going where they thought it was going. And they're starting to run out of supplies. They had enough tea. In fact, Shackleton every morning brought tea to each one of his men, even though he was the leader of the expedition. And this was completely against the British class system. But it made every man feel important. Well, now they're even running out of tea. So he and five others, including the depressed ones, the sad ones, the, the pessimistic ones. I shouldn't say depressed. I should say pessimistic. Nothing's going to work. We're all going to die, blah, blah, blah. Um, they all got in a little lifeboat, and he said, okay, we'll take enough food for a month. We won't need more than that, because we'll either find somewhere or we'll die, and we're going to go look for help. And so in this little lifeboat, they go out across the Arctic Sea, and the first thing they hit is a hurricane. 
And for 15 days, they're going through a hurricane. And they have to bail the water out of the ship. They're not sure if they're going to turn over. It's a mess. And finally, they end up at a place called South Georgia Island, where there's a whaling station. Unfortunately, the wind took them to the unsettled part of South Georgia Island. They had to go over 4,000-foot mountains covered with snow and glacier to get to the whaling settlement. The hurricane was still going on. They didn't want to take it around because they were afraid the rocks would hurt it. So they took nails from the boat, put it in their shoes. Two of the men stayed at the beach because they were sick. They built a shelter for them there. And the other three climbed over the mountain and then slid down the other side on their butts. And when they got to the whaling station, they looked so frightening that kids screamed and ran away from them. And no one believed that they were Shackleton and his men because they figured they were long dead. Well, eventually, he gets back. He rescues the men. Here's a picture that one of the photographers took. Um, there's a little boat out there, Shackleton coming in. Um, and his men, there's a bigger boat that you can't see in the picture. They're waving at him. It took a year and eight months, and they were finally rescued. Now, you think that having gone through this and succeeded and being celebrated afterwards would have been a good thing. But it actually kind of wasn't. Um, Shackleton, I'm just going to use him as an example. Shackleton died seven, eight years later. He was a bitter, restless, unhappy man. His family, when he died, he was far away. His family said, oh, don't even bother bringing his body home. Every business venture he attempted, he failed at. He had many acquaintances, but no friends. This amazing thing had happened, and he had gotten people through. It was heroic. And yet, he had a sense that his life was unfulfilled without any purpose. And that's the opposite of Naomi. So let me just briefly read through the story of Naomi, and then we'll talk about what Naomi ultimately has that Shackleton didn't. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. 
May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughter. Uh, I tried. There we go. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth be acceptable to you. All right. So we've got this lovely family. Ruth, Naomi, I mean Naomi, her husband, and their two children. And a famine comes, and they decide it's just not safe to stay in the promised land. Their family might die. Now, it sounds like pretty much everybody else in the village stayed put and decided to gut it out and see what God would do for them. But Naomi and Elimelech decided, no, we'll go somewhere where there's food, and so they chose Moab. Now, Moab, to the Hebrews, was a really unholy place full of really bad people. Uh, and the Hebrews had seen the Boabites up close during their wanderings. They'd been stuck on the plains of Moab for years. Moabites had raided their campments. Probably the Hebrews raided the Moabites, uh, but they don't mention that. Um, and the Moabites had all kinds of different gods. And you can kind of see from this picture, this is a sarcophagus, it's not a, it's not a god, but they, they had a, a sort of different way of expressing, expressing life through their art. Uh, in Numbers 25, the Hebrews 
began to take as concubines Moabite women. This is before they entered the land, but after they had the tabernacle. And Moabite women were apparently fairly equal to their husbands because we hear that Moabite women, or at least one, went with her husband to the tabernacle where women were not allowed to go. A priest killed them both on the spot right in front of the altar. And a plague came and the priest said, what do we need to do? God is telling us that we need to kill each and every Hebrew who married a Moabite woman. We need to kill the Moabite women and we need to kill their kids. And so thousands of people were killed in just a few days. And later on, the rule was propounded in the Torah, Deuteronomy 23.3, that no Moabite or descendant of a Moabite could ever enter the assembly up to the 10th generation. So 300 years. Well, Ruth and Naomi met probably only about 100 years after these events. So clearly, Elimelech and Naomi had decided it was better to survive than it was to follow these rules. So off they went. And Naomi's sons compounded the sin in the Hebrews' eyes by marrying Moabite girls. And from something that Naomi says, go back to your homes, you know, stay loyal to your gods, it sounds like the women were allowed to worship as they pleased within that household. So this was not a good thing. Um, so the Moabites. Well, Elimelech dies. Naomi lived on with her sons who married. And she indicates that it was a friendly, happy household. She says, you were kind to me and to my sons. And then the sons die as well. We don't know how, we don't know why. But from the text, we can take away a couple of different things. First of all, Naomi has no property. Neither did her sons or Ruth. So that meant her family had gone to Moab and they were just either renting or they were hired laborers of a sheep herder there. So they have nothing. Her husband and sons are dead. No one's gonna hire a woman to herd the sheep. That's a guy's job. Naomi is now destitute, and she has no male protector. Now, she's got nothing left, no land, no sons, no livelihood. Her whole life had fallen apart. But what we come to in the next section is not only does she feel grief, but she also feels despondency. She also feels like her identity is uh, at risk. Some of that has to do because she is a widow and the place of a widow in Hebrew life. As a widow without children or grandchildren, she's got very little standing. No one's going to take, take her into their home. No one's going to help her out. No one's going to feed her. No one's going to use her labor to pass on her own skills. She's got nothing. She's past menopause. She has no wealth, no dowry, and marrying a widow in Hebrew society, you had to have a dowry, and it had to be twice the dowry of a, a virgin, of a young unmarried woman. So marriage is out, as she said. A pauper, she'll be forever dependent on handouts, 
in Moab. She's got no one at all. She'll just be a beggar there. Uh, perhaps she has another choice. She could go back to Bethlehem. She'd, she'd still be a beggar, but at least she'd be among people who know her. So she's not without choice, but it's two very difficult choices. And despair claims her. As she's talking to the daughters, she says, no one will want me. The Lord has been mean to me. My life has no meaning. Everything I've done is gone. She's not talking about how she misses her sons or her husband. That would be grief. She's talking about how her life is unfair, it's not right, and her whole identity is negated. She feels shame, she feels grief, she feels worthless. And that's, that's depression. And I know that because depression is kind of a regular cycle in my own life. And all those things are part of that. Now, as I said, it's a cycle. Comes and goes. For her, this is where she is. It has come. It has come. But God offers a path to her to consolation, not only, but also fulfillment and hope. And he does it in three ways. The first two we've already discussed. A sense of purpose, fellowship, and finally, her recognition of his faithfulness. His faithfulness. Now, she decides to head out. Um, having a sense of purpose, even a little one, is often enough to just sort of grease the wheels just a little bit for just a little while to move forward from a sense of despondency. Uh, there's a famous admiral who gave a talk to Navy SEALs, and his, his remark to them was, every day, first make your bed. And they all laughed at that. And he says, no, no. If you make your bed, you'll know you have accomplished something that day. And if you make it right away, you know that you've accomplished it right away. Well, Naomi doesn't have a bed. She doesn't have a house. She doesn't have property. She's only got a bundle on her back. And she perhaps spent a lot of time screaming to God in the night because she certainly has a sense that God is part of this terrible thing that has happened to her. So she hasn't forgotten God. And somewhere in that night or through those days, she comes to her purpose. It's to go back to Bethlehem. What she's going to do there, she has no idea. But she's going to get from Moab to Bethlehem. And here we have her route home from Moab up across. This is desert and mountain. And you finally get to, to, to Bethlehem. It's a 78-mile journey. Uh, for an old woman with a, a pack on her back, I would think that 10 miles is the most she could do in a day, but possibly less. And you'd think that she'd want her daughters with her to help her out, but no, she tells her daughters not to come. 
And that's another hallmark of despondency. I'm not worth anything. I don't want you guys to even be around me. I am tainted. Go away. You say you love me? So what? I'm not worth it? Go away. What she's going to do is she's going to make this whole journey all the way home. And this is the same country that Jesus described in the, the story of the Good Samaritan. Robbers along the roads. And during the times of the judges, there was constant lawlessness along the borders. Uh, Naomi going it alone, in a way, it's almost a death wish. She's not going to kill herself, but maybe the robbers will. Her plan is a plan. She has a purpose. But how she's going to execute it is really stupid. And it's stupid because she refuses the second thing that Shackleton knew, which is that you need people around you. However much you think you're unworthy, you need those people, and God made you for those people. So here she is, rejecting companions, and that's some of the land that she would have gone through. But instead, Ruth stamps her foot. She shows that she is a real Moabite woman. She does not obey what she's supposed to do. She says, don't ask me to leave you. I'm coming with you. And you know, when I was a girl and people read this to me, it was always, oh, let me come with you, Naomi. Let me beg. But that's not what the language says. The language says that she asserts herself. I am coming with you. And I don't care if you don't think you're worth anything. You are worth everything to me. You are my true friend, and I'm going to be your true friend. I'm going to go with you. I, and in fact, the, the, the implication is that if Naomi starts walking, Ruth's going to continue walking maybe 10 paces behind, but she's going to be there for whatever. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die, and there will I be married. Uh, there will I be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And... Um, just to sort of touch on an issue in my own experience, the last big time that I went through a trough was about five years ago, six years ago. Um, and I had met a woman, really liked her. I thought, oh, why would she want to spend time with I'm no good. And she came, her name is Carol, and she came to me and she said, you know, I really think that I would like to get together with you at least once a week. I really like spending time with you, and I think once a week would be a great thing. And I was like, are you frickin' nuts? <laughs> well, that's what we did. Every morning, Tuesday morning, uh, from 9.30 until 11, I'd go to her house, or she'd come to my house, and we had coffee, and we talked, and we said a prayer. Um, we told silly jokes. We talked about books. It was wonderful. Uh, she became my piano teacher for a little while because I always wanted to learn how to play the piano. Um, and over time, you know, at first I was like, oh, this isn't going to work out. And after the first couple meetings, I thought, oh, she's never going to want to come back again. But, you know, she was a glutton for punishment. She did. And, and, and in time, it, I really started to look forward to it. Tuesday, 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 Tuesday. 
Every other day of the week is bad, but Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday is good. And I made sure that the house was tidy. You know, you have a purpose. Someone's coming over. I don't want them to see the pitch. Um, and I also learned how to make, this was a big, big thing. How do you like your tea? Well, she likes Earl Grey, which I didn't have the first time. And she likes it with a splash of vanilla and a splash of milk. So I learned how to make Carol tea. And she would come in, and I could offer. This is one way in which I'm, I'm good at life. I'm actually offering something to somebody. I have worth. And she likes it. She has worth. I have worth. We're friends. Now, she didn't offer to come and die with me. So, you know, maybe I should talk to her about that. But what Ruth offers Naomi is, is even more. What Ruth offers Naomi is what God offers. And it's clear to me, whether Naomi understood it or not, that God was pushing her to go back to Bethlehem. She had choices. She could stay in Moab, but she didn't. Something pushed her, even though going home would be admitting to a failure. And then Ruth. It seems like Ruth embraces uh, the Lord, not so much because she believes in the Lord, but because she loves Naomi. And God works with that. We're flawed. We're stupid. We muck up. We get caught up in our emotions, and sometimes we can't claw our way out. And God comes in. Now, Naomi going home uh, is a short-term purpose. Once she's home, she just tells everybody, you know, God has wrecked my life. Why me? Why me? Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because I am bitter and the Almighty has been bitter towards me. That big meanie. Uh, and that's where things are. I can't imagine that a lot of the, the people in Bethlehem wanted to spend a lot of time with her with that kind of anger just pouring out. But Ruth does. Ruth does. And I always forget. So when she arrives in Bethlehem, she is still bitter. But even so, God has not forgotten her. And that's where we move into the second chapter of Ruth, which I'm not going to read. But the, the morning after they arrived, presumably, the, we find out that she and Elimelech had a little parcel of land in Bethlehem, not enough to support a family, and they've arrived at the time of the barley harvest, so they can't plant anything. They've got to wait a full year before they'll have any food of their own. Um, but the following morning, Ruth gets up and she says to Naomi, I will, let me go into the fields and glean. And that's what a beggar did in their society. They went to the fields that were being harvested. They went behind the main harvesters. And anything that fell down, anything that the harvesters didn't think was good enough, they picked up and they brought home. And they could make into grain from that. Now, Naomi is an older woman. She's probably in her 50s. Ruth is probably in her mid to late 20s. Ruth clearly has uh, uh, an ethic of hard work, 
but she also wants to save Naomi the shame of going out and proclaiming that she's a pauper. Ruth does it for her. Ruth picks up Naomi's load. And, you know, Naomi is quite passive for the next couple chapters. I kind of wonder if she just hung around the house feeling sad for herself, or if her work started when Ruth got home and she pounded the grain. We, We just don't know. But she doesn't seem to come out into the community at all. It is Ruth. And Naomi directs her to Boaz's field. Boaz is rich. He's also a a distant kinsman. And lo and behold, when Boaz sees Ruth and discovers that she's gleaning for Naomi, he tells his servants two things. Okay, she's a Moabite, but you can't molest her. You can't rape her. I'll be mad at you if you do that. And secondly, he tells the servants to drop good grain so that Naomi and Ruth will have good things to eat. They won't just have what's rotten. He, too, is showing in a very delicate way that he's a true friend. Now, the barley harvest goes. That's about a month. Then comes the wheat harvest. Ruth is still going into the field. The wheat harvest ends. That's after another month or so. The gleaning season is over. And then Ruth comes home one day. The gleaning season's over. What are they going to do for food? Well, hopefully they've got a little stockpile. But Ruth comes home one day, and Naomi has a new plan. It's the next time she has a purpose. And this purpose actually gets her going. Her plan? Get Ruth and, and, and Boaz together. Little matchmaking here. And it becomes clear through the course of the story that that's also God's plan. He is allowing Naomi to share in it. But of course, Naomi decides how the plan should be implemented, and just as in the past, she comes up with a really dumb scheme. She tells Ruth to wait until it's nighttime, and Boaz is alone in his threshing floor, sneak in wearing her best perfume and her nicest dress, and then when he lays down to sleep, After he's drunk a little bit, she should snuggle up. (laughs) And commentators have a really hard time with this. (laughs) Because it's like, Naomi's supposed to be good, and yet she's telling Ruth to be bad. Um, But Ruth obeys her mother-in-law until she gets to the barn. She doesn't quite snuggle up to Boaz. She uncovers his feet so they get cold. And he sits up and says, Who's there? And Naomi told Ruth, once he's awake, he will take action and you just follow through. But that's not what Ruth does. Boaz wakes up and Ruth says, it's Ruth. I want you to marry me. I really like you. And Boaz almost bursts into tears. He's like, oh my gosh. You could have any of the young men. Why are you going for, for little old me? <laughs> they, they spend the night talking. 
He gives her food. She takes it back to Naomi and says, it's settled. Well, there's a few other twists and turns, but God, Ruth, and Boaz, through their own uprightness and their own listening to the Lord, are able to take Naomi's plan, however poorly planned out it was, and make it into something good. Once again, there's a purpose, and there are people working together. So here's a gleaner. And the thing is, God's plan for Ruth and Boaz is also God's plan for Naomi. And it takes Naomi all the way back. Did God want her husband to die? Was all that to teach her a lesson? Well, the answer is no. Was it to make her doubt herself? Maybe. Was it to help her to trust in him? Yes. Even in the midst of her despondency? Yes. Was it to teach her to rely on other people? Yes. To help get her through? Yes. And now Boaz and Ruth are married. And Ruth never had a child with, with uh, Malon or Kilion. We don't know which one married which, or at least I don't remember. Um, but right away, she has a child with Boaz. And that child is considered part of Naomi's family. And they invite Naomi in to the family. And she rears the child as a good Hebrew boy. And the women of the town say to her, Blessed are you, Naomi. Blessed is the God of Israel. And blessed is Ruth, who is more to you than seven sons. And now you have this child to raise. Naomi has now a lifelong purpose. She had to go through hell to get to it. But she's got it. And she's got loving people around her and the folks in the village who maybe scoffed at her when she first came back are amazed at what God has done and even more telling Naomi said blessed is the Lord Almighty who has redeemed me it took a long time it took grief it took changing her behavior her home everywhere but Somewhere along the way, she stopped to listen just a little bit. And even though as a very human person, she has human failings and doesn't always understand the best way to go about implementing the purposes that she's given, she still did it. And God brought good out of it. So, she still has scars. She probably still missed her husband and her sons but she's a whole person living a whole life once again. And she becomes an ancestor of Jesus, as does Ruth, going against the Deuteronomy bit. So what's the application? The application is that when we're in despair, whether it's over a real outside tragedy that everyone can see, death of, of a spouse or a child, uh, a terrible cancer diagnosis, or you know, uh, some, some disease like ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, 
uh, whatever it is, or if it's a cyclical depression or a one-time depression, grief, it, it doesn't matter. When in despair, God can meet us, and he can meet us with three simple steps. And the first one is adding a little purpose to the day. It could be as simple as, I will make my bed, and then the rest of the day I'll sit and look out the window, or sit in the closet in the dark. But still, there is a purpose. And taking that little step into life is something that God can use to pull forward. You can decide to learn something new. You know, the new it, it, your, it, life feels terrible. Okay, well, maybe taking a walk or going to a garden or growing herbs. Maybe that would help. Try, try, make a little purpose. Uh, feel pleased at the little miracle of getting out of bed and making it. Don't condemn yourself if you don't do more than that at first. You have to start somewhere. Uh, make a list of everything you accomplish and check it off. If you see at the end of the day that you, you, you plan to do two things and you did those two things, it's like, yeah, I did those two things. And then maybe in a few weeks you can add three or four. Let friends come into your life. And this is really, really hard because if we feel terrible about ourselves, we just don't feel sociable. And yet, friends are what we need. The Bible says a cord of three strands is not easily broken. You know, one cannot defend themselves. Two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Well, what's the third strand? When there's a friendship, and especially when the Lord is involved as a commonality in that friendship, the third strand is the Lord, is the Lord. And then remind yourself of God's faithfulness and understanding through his word. There are a lot of Psalms. Also, Jeremiah has some, some sections where he tells God just how rotten his life was and God probably shouldn't have even let him been born. And yet he comes back to the sense that God is great. Uh, in the Psalms, David was upset and low so many times. And yet there's a message of hope there as well. Um, and seek to learn of him through the anguish. Lord, when your son was in his dark night of the soul, you came to him in the garden. He didn't want what you were offering, and yet he was able to do it because you came to him. Please come to me. Please come to me. Thank you.